People want to live more sustainable. Consumers want to buy sustainable products. Movement is underway. The sustainable train has left the station and it's going quite fast. Are companies ready for this high-speed train or do they need to do some catch-up? Today we invited two industry experts to share their insights and the latest trends in the industry. Dirk is a senior executive passionate about building and developing internal audit, risk and control functions in global industrial environments. He prefers pragmatic solutions and since a few years he became an expert on sustainability. In 2022 he wrote a white paper, ESG and sustainability, a risk or opportunity for internal audit. Since 2022 he is also IIA Belgium's trainer on all our ESG courses. Our second guest of today is Dr. Deep Parekh. Deep is a seasoned executive and advisor with extensive experience in business strategy, digital transformation, and embedding ESG factors in multinational enterprises. Deep is also a renowned speaker, and after giving keynotes around the globe, we are very happy to have him as our guest in today's episode. Deep and Dirk, welcome. Yep, thank, thank you. you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Dirk, during our ESG course, we gave you two full days to talk about this topic. But for those who were not fortunate enough to attend one of your sessions yet, can you give us a general introduction on sustainability and CSRD more in particular? Yes. Um, hello, Cedric. Uh, thanks for inviting me. So I'll try to give uh, a, a brief uh, overview in just a couple of minutes. So first of all, I'd like to say we have two different topics here on the agenda. On the one hand, it's sustainability. On the other hand, it's sustainability reporting or CSRD. Maybe just start with a quick definition of sustainability, uh, where we say that this could be seen as uh, meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to, to meet their needs. So let's say uh, what uh, companies uh, need to do. Uh, on one hand, there's the sustainability reportings uh, where um, uh, companies will have to go through a whole journey doing uh, uh, creating awareness on the topic, identifying stakeholders, doing materiality assessments and building action plans and priorities. And then they will come to uh, the reporting. So this is, in fact, uh, how they can achieve this. But going back to your point on CSRD, I think it's important to highlight a couple of things which are the final stage of the journey. First of all, there's an acronym. Uh, CSRD stands for Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive. This should be at top of mind for companies for the moment. Definitely for large companies, and some companies have in fact already been doing some reporting. Uh, again, another acronym, the NFRD. Uh, this is, you'll see this afternoon, it's going to become a whole uh, alphabet soup. So the other interesting part is that um, those uh, in charge of current uh, reporting will also become in charge of the future reporting. So that's another uh, important element uh, to consider. Then also I'd like to highlight that well, the reporting is probably, uh, well, I would say, supported uh, or determined by what we call the ESRS. And this is the European Sustainability Reporting Standards. Again, uh, these are standards that if companies meet uh, those standards, well, they can uh, be compliant with, again, the CSRD. And then again, just to throw in uh, another acronym, uh, we have the EU taxonomy, which is uh, also applicable. And there, in fact, uh, what is described is for uh, some industrial sectors, there is uh, financial and non-financial uh, companies. They share a common definition of an economic activity, sorry, to be considered uh, uh, environmentally friendly. 
Again, this is only taking part of the E part of ESG, not the S and the G. So it's really a, a complex and uh, challenging environment. And um, yeah, again, as a friendly reminder, we have a training on that. It's taking two days and otherwise uh, there will be online webinars uh, later on the year. So definitely mark your calendar. Thanks a lot, Dirk, for this summary in, in a nutshell. Um, and indeed, I already see that it's a lot of acronyms, a lot of information, um, but at least we want to give you in the next uh, 25 minutes some more clarification um, during this podcast. Deep, based on what you hear at companies, what are some of the early reactions to all the, the regulations, the alphabet soup, uh, all the acronyms and actions the companies need to take? Uh, so Cedric, from my interaction with companies and clients, um, so I've learned that they're under enormous pressure to do something about it. Yeah, They don't quite understand it, uh, but they're under pressure. And this pressure is coming from five key directions. So I call this the starfish squeeze. Uh, first, of course, as Dirk mentioned, uh, the regulation side is daunting, it's complex. Um, then the second is the financial market. So if you're a business and go for a corporate loan or if you want to issue a bond, uh, the financial institution is going to ask you for your credentials in terms of ESG, uh, which is environment, society, and of course, governance. Um, third, you have consumers who are looking for greener, cleaner products, uh, more socially conscious products. So that's uh, an additional form of pressure. Fourth is, of course, the employees of the company want to work for a company that they can feel proud of and that is doing well uh, on all these fronts. And lastly, the business partners within the enterprise ecosystem, such as your vendors, your customers, your suppliers, uh, they're also putting pressure on businesses uh, to actually do better and to achieve more in terms of ES and G. So those are the key things that I'm seeing that are out there in front of companies. So the companies are in the starfish squeeze, um, like you call it. So between what consumers, employees want and their current state of mind, what are some of the main challenges that you see that companies are facing? So the major obstacle here, Cedric, is what I refer to as the fear of the unknown. So the compliance and reporting requirements are distributed over something like 13 documents with roughly 75 pages each. So you have about a thousand pages of documentation in total that they need to respond to and understand and internalize and institutionalize even more so. So in typical EU style, you know, the documents are quite dense, they're difficult to absorb, uh, but they're quite complete. Yeah, so that's the good thing. Uh, but the companies are struggling to understand what the regulation is very specifically and how it applies to their business. So plus, since it's non-financial in nature, um, CFOs are not quite familiar with these types of things, and but it's landed in their laps, so they need to figure out what to do with that. So what this fear leads to is some sort of a static inertia. So they might understand it, but CFOs and chief uh, sustainability officers who are accountable for this don't quite know where to start the journey because, as Dirk pointed out, it is quite complex and there are many, many moving parts to this whole thing. The ones who do get over the static inertia are left with a choice. Do, do you see this as some sort of a um, risk that needs to be managed or some sort of a compliance burden that needs to be addressed? Or do you see it through the operating lens as, in fact, an opportunity that you can exploit and actually use ESG and sustainability as a competitive advantage? Once you get over the static inertia, you find that there's two ways to approach the whole concept of sustainability and ESG. 
Um, the two approaches, are, you'll, I'll use a metaphor. One is a soup approach or one is a salad approach. The salad approach is a piecemeal approach where the business strategy and the ESG strategy are somewhat separate, but somehow connected through small means, uh, through fragmented initiatives, through a little piece of action here and there. Um, and this is how most companies are approaching it. It's a, it's a risk-averse approach. It's not bad. It's not shameful. It's nothing wrong with that. Uh, companies who don't know what to do are happy to engage in such an incremental strategy. The soup approach has been adopted by companies such as Unilever or even Patagonia, who have decided that, in fact, their ESG strategy is no different than their business strategy. It's one and the same, it's all intertwined, and you cannot extricate one from the other. And so the soup approach means it's an all-in approach, where you dive right into it and you figure it out as you're going along, uh, and your, your business and your ESG is all the same thing. So, Deep, the, the fear of the unknown is something very human. It is indeed, Cedric. And and so, you know, the, the idea is that you can get over this fear of the unknown through a quick, you know, webinar, seminar on this topic, attend some of the classes that Dirk was talking about earlier uh, to better understand it, right? The way to overcome fear is to better understand the fear. Uh, and so, therefore, this is no different. You will often realize that uh, as, a, as a leader of a business that you're probably already doing something about these in some fragmented manner, right? And you may not even be realizing it. Um, I was at one of our clients, in fact, who's an industrial scaffolding company, uh, which when they started putting together their list of initiatives, they were already undertaking, it, it seemed like they were already quite on their way and uh, they didn't uh, really catalog all of them uh, until we said, hey, for sustainability or for CSRD reporting or what have you, it's important to catalog these things and acknowledge what you're already doing there. Um, and you know, as soon as you start doing that, you start realizing that, hey, I'm already doing some of this thing. And so therefore the fear factor goes down quite a lot. We had the same thing with a technology consulting firm who was actually donating computers once they were done with them and didn't quite realize that this fit into a lot of the programs for social equity and for and for upskilling uh, other people who may not have access to these kinds of uh, um, assets. So that's uh, that's 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 quite an important thing to get over, and it's not that difficult. Uh, indeed, I think it's interesting that uh, well, yeah, some companies are already doing something uh, on ESG or on sustainability. Rather, uh, I think for me, definitely, uh, companies need to look at what they're doing and don't reinvent the wheel because uh, they will notice that a number of things are already done. So once they have overcome their fear, they want to do something about it, but they don't know where to start. You called it the static inertia. Um, how can they overcome? Uh, that static inertia. So the static inertia really can be overcome. First thing is to do an ESG assessment, right? To do a sustainability assessment in some way, uh, address the environment part, the social part, the governance part. Um, a lot of companies are doing this. We at Grand Thornton Belgium are doing these types of assessment for a variety of clients. Uh, you you know you 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 get this very easy and clear to read heat map. Uh, red is bad, yellow is so so, green is good. Uh, as to where the hot spots are and where the priorities priorities are to get started. So you can clearly rank these, these items in some sort of a strategic order aligning with your business strategy and all that, uh, which you can start quickly prioritizing and uh, it can uh, you know it can it can start leading to an assemblage or a catalog of initiatives uh, that you can start conquering these obstacles and start exploiting opportunities. 
CSRD actually becomes a really great checklist with which companies can look at their initiatives and start to catalog them against this checklist that CSRD is able to provide. So this actually makes sustainability less of an abstract concept and more of a very clear concept which they can actually you know, create actions to do more in each front. We were talking about risk opportunity. Some may see it as risk, some as an opportunity. What is the right operating lens, like you call it, to look at this? I think you said it correctly that your lens can be calibrated towards what your journey requires. So there are companies that are doing their business as usual. They can do, they can try to do it less badly, so less impactfully in terms of negative impact. And that's really more of a risk lens which companies can view through and say, okay, these are the activities I'm performing. This is what I need to do less of. Um, the other part is more on the opportunity side. So we had an example with a with a, uh, a company that made products for pet care, uh, like dog toys and things like that. Um, and the CEO uh, and his sustainability leader saw many opportunities within their business model that we were able to point out that, in fact, they were able to create more of a circular product. So because they made these dog toys, which are made out of rubber, it was very simple to create a, log- a reverse logistics supply chain to, to get back product from the marketplace, from consumers that was torn or broken or whatever, and to recirculate these products without using virgin material into new dog products. And so just with a slight tweak of their business model, they're able to seize an opportunity and create a more sustainable product, which is more attractive to the consumers at the end of the day. Yeah, I would say companies will definitely have to to take a look on, okay, what are they doing, but also the, the why are they doing it. I think a lot of the things we're seeing and reading the today is kind of the purpose. So a lot of companies will have to consider or reconsider their purpose. Why are we in business? Why are we doing certain things? Absolutely. In fact, we have this other example of an ice cream company um, where uh, when I talked to the the senior vice president of supply chain, he said that they wanted to introduce organic chocolate into their ice creams, but view that, you know, organic chocolate is a lot more expensive than non-organic chocolate. But what they did is they went in for the long run. And what they did is invested in the farmers, farming practices, education, technology, materials and assets. And when they supplied all of these to the farmers, what they found over the long term is that the farmers did better, their yields were higher, and over the course of, I think, four or five years, uh, the cost per unit or the cost per kilo of organic chocolate went down so much that it actually became cheaper than regular chocolate. So if you're willing to uh, engage in longer-term views about sustainability, it really benefits both the company as well as the farmer or whoever the, the, the vendor is who you have a strategic partnership with. Yeah, and I think that last example is a is a very good example that well, yeah, sustainability. It's more than reporting only. It's again the whole yeah the whole set of actions that you do around it. In fact, so Derek, there are two forces pushing us uh, in the same direction. There's the legislation and there's the market. Which one do you think is the most important? Well, you know, as an auditor, I would be inclined or I should be inclined to say, well, yeah, it's the legislative part because, yeah, our role is amongst uh, others to, 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 to be aware of compliance and, and or to make sure that companies are compliant with uh, local laws and regulation. Uh, but it, again, I, I would tie back to the definition of sustainability. And sustainability is kind of the long run that we're looking for. And therefore, I would be inclined to say, yeah, it's rather the market and, and, and the consumer and, and the environment, all the stakeholders that are pushing compliance 
companies and they should consider that force, in fact. I think for myself, uh, Dirk, I would say that I, I think I would be in violent agreement with you. Um, I would add something, however, is that um, let market forces drive competition toward being more sustainable. Therefore, since market forces are very good at fostering competition between different players, let this natural competition be um, the prevalent force that drives companies towards greater and greater forms of sustainability uh, so that this becomes the competitive weapon of the next uh, few decades. And in fact, that competition, well, and that's one of the side, the good side effects, I would say, on, uh, on sustainability, that's also going to initiate uh, innovation, in fact. So I think yeah, if people do it for the right choice, there's only going to be winners uh, coming out of it. Huh? Exactly. Uh, one thing to, to add to that was that on the legislation side, we shouldn't discount it completely because I think there's a great deal of benefit to the regulation that's coming about, especially in terms of things like transparency for the consumer, for the end user, for the vendors. Because now, finally, the you know um, all the towels come down. Basically, you you can see who's doing what, where the provenance of the products is from, who's using what material, where did it come from, all of those things, which I think can only create greater awareness of the global supply chains and help us to um, to either identify different sources or different materials or different products or niche markets or what have you that we can uh, care for through our programs. Derek, uh, I'm very grateful that you mentioned internal audit already because that's a perfect bridge to my next question about what can be the role of internal audit regarding CSRD. Well, maybe I would just start with a brief reminder, uh, you know, the, the objective uh, of an internal audit department, according to the IA currently, uh, the mission of internal audit is to add value and improve an organization's operation, but also improve the effectiveness of risk management, control and governance. Again, play, having a typical role, I think internal audit can have two roles there. On the one hand, advisory, on the other hand, assurance. Now, again, for me, I think uh, which role they will play and can play is going to be depending a little bit on the maturity. On one hand, the ESG, ESG maturity of an organization, but then also the maturity of the internal audit organization in itself. So for me, here are just a couple of examples of yeah, audits, engagements, uh, services uh, that an internal audit uh, department could, uh, could perform or offer. For instance, from an assurance point of view, uh, we mentioned already uh, there's going to be materiality and risk assessments, so they can could review the re results of that, of course, with an ESG uh, perspective. Also, uh, one of the requirements of the CSRD is going to be uh, reviewing uh, uh, and uh, make an assessment on the completeness, accuracy, consistency of the ESG data. But I think more importantly, also the effectiveness of the internal controls around that process. Then internal audit can also review uh, the reporting metrics uh, which are used, uh, that for relevancy, accuracy, and so on. And then last but not least, uh, do a review of the reporting uh, for consistency with formal financial disclosure filings. So again, there's going to be a heavy burden on companies to report timely and completely, but I think uh, internal audit can take part of that burden. 
Then from an advisory perspective, uh, and as you, if you look at companies and compare with companies, um, I would say the, the million dollar question is going to be where, where should ESG risks be managed? Again, if you look at, and it's going to be depending a little bit, you know, organization wise, uh, industry wise, but some companies do have a specific sustainability committee. For others, it's linked with a risk committee. For others, the reporting is uh, through the audit committee. And for others, it's straight to the, to the CEO or to the board. So internal audit can definitely have a look, well, is ESG risk uh, properly managed or managed at a proper level in our uh, company? Then internal audit can also help building the ESG control environment. Again, from an historical perspective, we as a profession have a good experience in internal controls. So that's definitely where we can contribute to uh, about the control environment of the company. Then also, well, give an insight in the ESG metrics that are used. Again, if you use the wrong KPI, well, you're going to get the wrong results. So we can definitely be a critical challenger on uh, are we using the right metrics uh, for our business. And then last but not least, like we've seen in the past, in a lot of companies, um, the ESG sustainability journey is going to engage or bring uh, a lot of transformational projects again not in the project management, but again, accompanying these projects, making sure that the right control environment is built in, that can be a good role for an internal audit department. From my perspective, Cedric, um, internal auditor has always been a trusted advisor. I think the spectrum of advice that they give uh, is extending beyond what they've done so far. So what this does is that this is a chance for internal auditors to add uh, valuable new capabilities to their portfolios in this area of sustainability. Um, they have typically not opined very heavily in this space because the the overall um, amount of knowledge available in the marketplace is limited um, and uh, the audit standards have yet to catch up with what the, the, the standards need to be for non-financial reporting. The internal auditors are able to dig through a business and identify root causes. I think with ESG, this job is going to become more complex because there are so many moving parts that are interrelated to each other that they're going to need to sift through a lot of different parts more carefully and with a lot more due diligence on each of these parts. And not just the parts, but in fact, the linkages between these parts, which influence the outcome of what the company does. Um, so through this work of internal audit, I think companies can take action faster and more holistically uh, and not just simply solve the symptom, but actually solve the underlying problem. In my opinion, this area of internal audit is going to be in great demand. It'll create a number of new opportunities and jobs in the space in the period between 2026 and 2030, as more and more companies take on their CSRD journeys and will want assurance on a lot of their procedures, their policies, uh, their disclosures, their targets, and their actions in the years to come. And I, I would say to what uh, Deep says, uh, like you mentioned before, there's currently, uh, what they say, a war on talent going on. One of the positive side effects, in fact, of, uh, of this whole uh, sustainability uh, team is that companies who are doing the right things, well, they have an attraction item in, uh, in finding uh, young and new talent because younger people definitely want to work for a company that's doing the right thing uh, from a sustainability point of view. And talking about this great demand for people in this area, um, Dirk, do you think internal auditors have the right capabilities right now? Do we need a mindset shift uh, within internal audit? 
Well, it would be a pity if I have to say that we don't have the right capabilities. And so uh, is it going to be a walk in the park? Probably not. Is it feasible? I, I think so. Now, again, what are some of the challenges that uh, companies and internal audit teams will be facing? Uh, maybe to start with, it's kind of, well, first of all, the governance of the internal audit function. Eh? So what is the mandate that internal audit will get? Uh, how is sustainability governed in the group? And what is the role that internal audit can play? I think those are a couple of, uh, well, maybe basic but fundamental questions that will uh, kind of guide the work that we are doing. Then also from a professional practice, what's the audit universe? What is our scope? What are we allowed to do? Uh, I think that's definitely going to guide also that uh, that question. And then, like I mentioned, uh, yeah, the staffing of the audit function. Eh? Do we have the current or the good competencies in the internal audit team? So I think there's uh, some thinking process behind. So yeah, I, to my uh, fellow auditors, I, I would like to kind of give a, a parting message because uh, maybe even uh, after this podcast, they still will have a, a couple of questions. So for me, there's, there's three items uh, that I would say. Uh, first of all, sustainability is a, a bit, a little bit like eating an elephant. Eh? How do you eat an elephant? Well, there I would say it's simple. It's piece by piece. So start small, learn about it, and as you get the taste, you will get uh, used to it. The other part, as I said, is, um, or what I refer to a number of times, is the alphabet soup. Again, if you read an article on sustainability, it's going to take you five lines before you have 10 acronyms. So just try to absorb this at your own pace. Look at it uh, as a new, uh, from a new point of view. And there is, again, you will learn it uh, piece by piece. But then also last but not least, I would say, yeah, it's a little bit like hide and seek. Uh, you can hide from it. But sooner or later, it's going to come to your desk. It's going to be in your company. Uh, and, and yeah, you will have to uh, learn new things. But on the other hand, it's also an opportunity. You will have the ability to collaborate with new departments, usually depart departments with whom you've never interacted or less interacted in the past. And again, look at it uh, from a learning opportunity. Right. Uh, the potentially more than... On any other topic, a lot of different people from a lot of different departments will be required to cooperate together. It's the main difficulty. So do you have any insights on how companies can potentially overcome some of those difficulties? We typically view ESG-centric transformation as any other business transformation. There's a lot of moving parts, a lot of data, a lot of people, a lot of different pieces to be put together. In any transformation journey, change is the biggest uh, motivator or the biggest issue here. And when we talk about change management, it has to go through different steps. So awareness and then understanding and then having a perception that's positive, then having some sort of adoption, then having some sort of commitment level, internalization, and then institutionalization. These are the different stages of absorption of change and the the uh, the carrying forward of change how can you achieve this this type of journey and this type of result uh, it fundamentally comes down to motivation right and uh, how do you motivate a company to collaborate internally and externally to achieve these results it comes down to again it's a typical carrot or stick issue right so there are three major considerations here uh, one is the unit of analysis so 
Whereas it's nice to have strategic goals and objectives linked to the sustainable development goals and having these colorful squares on your website. Uh, it's not enough to actually create the change that you need. You need to get down to a much more granular level if you want to achieve that type of collaboration in the actions that you want to pursue. So first thing is, if I were to set my goals you know, at the level of staff, that will work, right? But if I lev- if I just set my goals at the company level, it will probably not work. Um, so for example, if I have a high level goal such as fair labor practices, for example, it's a nice strategic objective, but nobody's in charge of it. Nobody needs to, nobody's, nobody knows what to do about that, right? However, if I put it to a more granular level at the level of the production manager, assessing labor laws and wages to ensure that his or her production staff are well paid and paid equitably uh, and make it a part of a job description, the process architecture and the procedure manual, that is adherent to the policy, then it will work because that production manager knows exactly what he or she needs to do, right? Uh, so that's that's the that's a piece about the unit of analysis. Then, if you want to have a carrot, use rewards, use incentives to achieve specific goals and targets. If you set rewards for establishing the particular target in your particular area, such as ensuring that labor laws are adhered to or that equitable practices are being developed or done, then it will move people towards this goal. It will incentivize them to achieve this goal and, uh, and, and it'll achieve the results that the business wants to achieve. The last piece is the stick. If you create some sort of a disincentive for maintaining the status quo, for not changing, not transforming, and if you increase the penalties for non-adherence to objectives, then that will also work, right? But again, they need to be down to the very specifics of the job description and the particular process or procedure. So for example, if you have a procurement manager who does not collect the required information from the vendor, such as the quality of labor, labor pay, labor wages, labor uh, contracts and standards, well, then that person should be penalized because they're in fact risking the reputation of the enterprise if there's some sort of substandard quality or labor practices that are identified in an audit, whether internal or external. So these are the three key things that you need to look at. And I would just like to add one thing to it. In the training, we have a testimonial, uh, one from a person from an international company, one from a Belgian company that's already doing some sustainability reporting. And, and in fact, one of the learnings from both testimonials is, well, we will not have it right from the first time. And that's something, well, either we are used to it or as a profession, we want to achieve that. But again, you won't get it right the first time. So there's going to be some trial and error in, in it. And you just need to find uh, yeah, the, the, right, uh, the right error or, or the right balance. So the main takeaways from today are that action items need to be actionable at the right level. We need to use a carrot and a stick. Uh, Well, an elephant is best eaten in pieces and we will definitely not get it right from the first time. Thank you, Deep and Dirk, for these valuable insights. Um, And for those who want to know more about sustainability, take a look at our website iiabelgium.org or go ahead and subscribe for ESG training. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us, Dirk.